Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, and I'm here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and we've been going through the book of Isaiah chapter by chapter. Uh, We are now hitting chapter 7, which is a little different if you've already read ahead. Um, It's filled with a lot more story-driven perspective as opposed to the long oracles that God gives Isaiah to give to the people. And you'll notice for the first time there is mention of a probably familiar to you if you've been in church uh, child named Manuel. And you might be really confused by that, but don't worry, we're going to jump into that and we're going to kind of talk about it and also talk about how prophecy works in this context. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited for that. One of the things I will mention, however, is that this story takes place in a huge historical backdrop, and I'll try to do my best to summarize that backdrop as best I can. Um, There are really three, really four groups of people at play in this. Um, The first group is what's considered the Arameans. Sometimes in your text they'll be called Aram, sometimes they'll be called Syrians, Um, but they all are the same people group, and this people group came... Um, from, believe it or not, from uh, Genesis and uh, the family of Rachel and Rebecca. Um, if you remember, there was a father of Rachel and Leah named Laban, um, and their people uh, were in the land of Aram. And that's where uh, Isaac ends up finding a wife in this group of people. Um, but that people stayed separate from Israel. And as Israel Uh, inherited the land of Canaan by the time of Joshua, um, a lot of the people that still lived in the land were descendants of Laban. And so a big portion of the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings is dealing with the fact that some of their distantly related um, patriots are um, not happy that they're there, and so they end up having many different wars and battles against each other. This area ends up becoming significant in the New Testament as well, because Syria is where Damascus is located, and also Antioch, where the first church was located. So a lot of this um, position where Aram is, is north of uh, Israel, and is kind of right in between Israel and another group we'll talk about in a second called Assyria. Um, Of course, you've already, if you've been listening to the podcast, know about Israel and how Israel split from Judah. Israel is the 10 northern tribes, um, all except Judah, really. And this people group is right in between Syria, which we just talked about, 
and uh, Judah. And so this group is um, has a king named Pekka, and uh, he is also at odds with the people of Judah. Um, the final group I'll mention right now is um, the group of Assyrians. And the Assyrians were in a totally different group. They um, lived in a, the capital city of Nineveh, which uh, you might be familiar with from the tale of Jonah. Um, but they were a very brutal uh, society. They uh, punished people very severely. Um, there are um, records that we have from archaeological evidence that um, indicate that they uh, tortured people. Uh, many people uh, and were very brutal in their ways of uh, taking care of those that did not pay them tribute. And by this period in time, they had become the dominating powerhouse of the Middle East and they had really conquered a lot of it. Uh, and as you can see, had conquered many of the Middle Eastern territories, including Aram and Israel. And uh, so Judah is paying tribute to Assyria at this time because they had conquered so much of the land. But Judah, you'll see, wants to make an alliance with Assyria so that they can uh, essentially take out these two other nations that are attacking Judah, uh, which would again be Israel, their brother, and uh, Aram or Syria, um, which is right next to them. So hopefully that's a bit of uh, historical background to all four of these different groups. It can kind of get confusing what's going on unless you know that all these different four groups are here. But just remember that there's Judah in the south. Uh, just north of them is Israel. And then just north of them is Aram or Assyria. And then far north and even a little um, west of them is Assyria in Nineveh. So hopefully that helps, and uh, we'll go ahead and dive into this chapter. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It will not take place, it will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within sixty-five years Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, 
you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices in the rocks, on all the thorn bushes and at all the water holes. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the river, the king of Assyria to shave your head and the hair of your legs and to take off your beards also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two goats, and because of the abundance of the milk they give, he will have curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will be only briars and thorns. Men will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. All right, so that is Isaiah 7. Um, you probably are familiar with uh, the middle portion of this, and I'm willing to wager a guess that you did not know some of the historical context of that prophecy and where it was uh, placed in the story. A lot of uh, the time this passage gets quoted, it gets quoted at Christmas time, and we don't really know the historical context surrounding it all that much because, well, frankly, it's just a story that doesn't really matter to the Christmas story all that much. And so one of the first things I wanted to talk about is how could the virgin be with child and give birth to a son and he be called Emmanuel and that be a sign for this king in this period of the Old Testament when we know that this prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus um, far later on in history, how can that be the case? Um, and that's a great question if you're asking that. That was certainly the question I asked when we first read this passage. And we spent a lot of time in my Isaiah class talking about this passage and what this means for prophecy overall. There's kind of a couple prevailing ideas behind how this works out, and I'll give you kind of a few that are sort of the main ones. The first one is uh, what I would call uh, the near and far fulfillment idea, which essentially means that there is oftentimes in the books of prophecy in the Old Testament a fulfillment of the prophecy in their time, in their context. So um, this view would hold that there really was a child and there really was a virgin that gave birth to a child 
in the period of Ahaz. Um, and he was a sign for the people of that time that Ahaz would be delivered. Um, but then there will also be in the future a far fulfillment, which would be Jesus and his birth in the first century. Now, of course, there are some problems with that. One, how could a miracle like this happen twice? Uh, And two, we don't really hear about this actually being fulfilled anywhere else in scripture during Ahaz's time, which we feel like at least in first and second Kings, where uh, this story, parts of this story can be found at least, uh, we feel like at Maybe if a virgin had given birth to a child named Emmanuel in that time, uh, that might have gotten mentioned, and it doesn't. So um, those are some knocks against that view, not saying it's wrong. It's just um, people have their opinions and oftentimes uh, find that one a bit of a stretch. Another belief that's pretty prevalent is the allegorical view of prophecy, which really means that... um, In many ways, uh, this prophecy is not uh, prescribing historical events at all. Um, It's not uh, saying that a literal virgin will give birth. Um, It's just saying that a woman will give birth to a son. And uh, for this time period, they ascribe um, what will happen in Isaiah 8 and the fact that Isaiah Isaiah himself will give birth to a child in that chapter as the fulfillment of this prophecy, uh, and that Isaiah's son is really this allegorical fulfillment of this. And then Jesus allegorically uh, fulfills this passage as well later on. And so they still kind of go with the maybe near and far fulfillment idea, but um, instead of looking at it literally, they look at this prophecy allegorically and try and avoid that miraculous side to it. Um, There's a third view that I'm particularly fond of, uh, which is the view that um, the uh, prescription of uh, the uh, word virgin in this passage is um, really up for debate a lot in the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. Um, the uh, Septuagint, which uh, is the oldest version of the Bible that we have aside from the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, is very uh, much uses a word that implies virgin. Um, and so a lot of translations go with the Septuagint on this one. Um, and translate it virgin. However, the um, Dead Sea Scrolls use a word that is uh, a little bit more suspect and can mean just young woman um, as opposed to virgin, and it's very ambiguous as to whether or not virgin is literally meant here. And so a lot of people... um, argue that in this passage in Isaiah, um, it should be better translated, a young woman will be with child and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. And that avoids the complex situation of having two different virgin births, um, and that when Jesus comes along, I do believe that it was a virgin birth, when Jesus comes along, he is uh, fulfilling that older, even more... Um, nuanced meaning of that Hebrew word that might imply virgin. And so 
having that ambiguity in that Hebrew word allows for a both and not an either or. So I tend to go with that one um, as uh, my reading of it is that in this time there was probably a child that was born that was called Emmanuel, but it was born of a young woman, not a virgin. And then I go with uh, the view that Jesus was born of a virgin uh, named Mary in the New Testament. So that's those are the three different ways that you can kind of look at it. Um, feel free to do your research on your own to try and figure out which one you might want to come down on. Um, there are a lot of different people that argue this point pretty heatedly. So uh, if you wade into this territory, just you know, know that there's a lot of snobby academics that all have their opinions about it. But um, hopefully I've done a good job of describing all three of these. And uh, I hope that you uh, uh, find your way to one of these. Um, another thing I'll point out is that uh, there is a obvious um, difference of opinion between Isaiah and Ahaz. And uh, you might have noticed that Ahaz appears to have this view um, of the Lord that um, might seem holy to you. In verse 12 of chapter 7, he says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, which is, if you go to Matthew 4, one of the sayings that Jesus will use after a temptation from the devil. And so you might be curious why Isaiah gets so mad at Ahaz for saying this. And um, if you really read into the context and you read about Ahaz as a person, um, there's several examples of him in uh, Second Chronicles as well as in Second Kings um, that you can go and look up. He is not a good person at all and uh, does not value the Lord at all and uh, has a very um, nonchalant view of God. And when all of this um, uh, catastrophes uh, befall Judah, he does not turn to the Lord for help, but turns instead to many of the gods of Assyria. In fact, there's a story in Second Kings where um, he does one of the worst atrocities that any king could do. He takes the altar of the burnt offering that's in the temple and moves it into a small corner and sets up a new altar that's really a carbon copy of the altar in Assyria um, that's dedicated to the Assyrian gods. And he sacrifices every sacrifice that the temple um, houses on that altar instead of the altar of the burnt offering, which is prescribed in Leviticus. So he does some awful things that really anger the Lord. Um, he even goes so far as to sacrifice one of his sons um, to the god Moloch, uh, who uh, asked for child sacrifice, and he's just one of these kings that does not have a good heart at all. So I tend to read verse 12 as not Ahaz being pure and holy-minded as Jesus was in Matthew 4, but is really just being snobby and trying to give a quip answer um, to Isaiah um, just because he he doesn't have a good heart. So here's what's fascinating about this passage overall then, is that God promises that Judah will not be destroyed and promises this Emmanuel child right in the middle of one of the worst kings of Judah up until that point. This is not a uh, promise of hope in the middle of Judah doing well. This is a promise of hope in the middle of Ju Judah doing awful. Um, and this is another theme that goes throughout um, the whole book of Isaiah is that God is going to promise this this child, this Emmanuel, um, which if you don't know, Emmanuel means God is with us. And 
this is a really powerful point in which uh, God is saying, I am with you, even though you are uh, failing me. I am with you through all of this. Um, and to me, Isaiah 7 is one of the most beautiful passages, not just because it has reference to the Christmas story, but also because it's showing that God in the middle of this awful people is promising some of the most beautiful futures to come for this people as well, and that his own son is going to come and rest with them. And that's just beautiful to me. It's uh, one of those things that I think we often overlook when we tell the Christmas story is that this promise was given in a time when this people was not following God at all. They were following after other gods and sacrificing their children to other gods, and they were going far away. And God promises this prophecy right in the middle of that when God was fully in his rights to let Israel and Aram take Judah out because they had been defiling his decrees. Um, He could have just let these two people just overrun Judah and tear them apart, Um, but he doesn't. He saves them from it even in the middle of this and promises this prophecy to a king that does not love him at all. Um, And I think that that's just such a beautiful depiction of who God is as a person. Um, I also will point out that even though there is this mercy, by the time you get down to um, verse 17, we switch back again to judgment. Um, You have uh, this concept that I think is actually really interesting as a double meaning. The land of uh, Israel and Judah was called the land of milk and honey. And by the time you get down to um, God's prophecy of what will eventually happen to Judah, um, they're going to get taken out, not by these two kings, but they're going to get taken out by that fourth country I mentioned at the start, Assyria. And Assyria is the one that's going to come and level them. And what's interesting is what Assyria is going to do and how it's going to do the damage it does to this land. And what it's going to do is actually revert the land back to what it was before Judah and Israel stepped foot in it. Uh, What I mean by that is when God promised this land, he said it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. And as you can see in verse 21, it says, a man will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of the milk that he give, he will have curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. So this is basically God saying, I'm starting over with this land. Y'all have failed, and I'm going to revert this land back to the original thing that it was when you guys first entered the land. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey again, and that's all that's going to be there. There's not going to be any humans there to possess it or to um, enjoy it. If so, there's going to be only a few men left that get to enjoy that, and it just will be what it originally was at the front end before Israel and Judah came into it, and ruined it, really. And I think that's also a powerful point. It's showing that God is put, push, uh, putting a reset button on this entire land. And this is also going to be a theme that goes throughout Isaiah, is that I, God is not going to just wipe it out completely, and that's it. It's done. He's hitting a reset button, and this is going to be the new way that things are going to hap- have happen, is he's giving the land its rest. It's going to come back again stronger than it was before. And the remnant that survives this judgment is going to enjoy the land as it was originally intended, right? His original intention was that the people of Judah and Israel, they got into the land and could enjoy the milk and honey, and they could enjoy the land, and they could take care of it and be and worship him. 
So he's going to bring about this judgment so that we get back to that, not just because he's angry and wrathful, but so that we can get back to that original promise that he's looking for. And so all of those themes are really combined in Isaiah 7. You can really see them take root here, uh, is this idea that God is interested in restoration, not just judgment. And that's really the main point that I think Isaiah bring, Isaiah 7 brings to this. Um, so I hope you got something out of this today. Um, we're going to keep going, and I'm really excited uh, for, the, for what's to come. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.